So please open your Bible to Acts. We are in chapters five. Chapters five. And the thing is, I'm, I'm hoping to actually, just to be out there and honest, it, today, um, dealing with some sensitive material. So I don't know, I don't want to rush it. I want to make sure that we're thinking about it, we're analyzing it, and we're doing it really good. Yeah, thank you. You're doing a fair justice. So I don't know. We might end early. We might end late, depending on how I feel about it, to be honest with you, how the Holy Spirit <laughs> leads and guides us. So let's pray, and then we'll just bust into this. So if you have your Bibles, you should at this point be in Acts chapter 5, um, or if you have devices and various things, phones and tablets and whatnot, Acts 5. So let's pray real quick. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word, Lord. And I, and I pray, God, that as we study it this, this morning, Lord, and as we look at it devotionally, Lord, into our lives, Lord, that it would make sense, Lord. It would help us, Lord. It would conv- con- convict us and we would be confronted with it, Lord. But also, Lord, that we would draw close to you, Lord. We would know your character and be able to, to bend our ways more towards you, more like you, Lord, in all ways. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first slide, and to be upfront honest with you, it is quite a graphic story, this one. We've already begun it last week time, which I was saying last week, but last week was communion, so it was a week before that. Um, and, and, and we talked a little bit about some of the implications of the story, and I don't want to, re, I don't want to repeat myself from last time, so I, I do apologize if, if you weren't there, and, and, and I'm going to be assuming or presuming certain things, but, um, but I'm going to touch on them briefly as we go on. So let's just get right into it. And like I said, the story is a pretty, I think it's one of the most craziest stories in the Bible. I mean, it is. It's, it's a crazy story. Uh, and I love crazy stories, but it's just, what? I mean, imagine being here. Imagine actually hanging out with the disciples and and the, and the apostles, and just and just being there. And, and as we're going to see quickly in the story, that the, the, the people who were meeting together were very much so believers. There wasn't many non-believers because the non-believers were quite scared of the things that were going on here. But yet at the same time, they were drawn to it because they liked the healings and the miracles. So it was quite a strange time, the early church, especially here in Jerusalem, you know, at this, at this time in this place. So Acts 5, chapter 1, we're going to read this story again. This, 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 this interesting story, uh, a fellow named Ananias and his wife named Sapphira, or Sapphira. I say different ways all the time. So it says here in verse 1, Now a man named Ananias, or Ananias rather, together with his wife Sapphira, Sapphira, also told a, or sold a piece of property. Now, in context of what we learned last time is that there was a fellow who, who did this earlier, and he sold the property, he believed in the movement, and he honestly and genuinely took his money and gave it to the church so that everyone can share it communally, okay? That's what he said he did, and that's what he did do, and he was blessed. And I, and I, and I kind of imagined that maybe these two, 
this, this husband and wife duo, they got caught up into the emotion. They got caught up into the, the excitement. Look at this. What a lovely thing he did. This is amazing. I want to do a lovely thing like this. Let's go do this as well. But then they, as, they, as the reality hits, you know what I'm saying? Like if you think I got a really good idea and you get all fired up and you get all passionate about it. But then when, when reality hits and things get a little mm, funky, you know, like, well, this is a little hard. This is a little, okay. Yesterday, I wanted to give the Lord everything. But today, I slept, I woke up, I had breakfast, and I'm feeling like maybe half is, is good enough. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's kind of how they were like, okay? Uh, so they said, one, maybe, maybe at one point, they're like, let's just give him everything, like, like this fellow did, because we liked that. That's, that's good. It made us feel good. It made other people feel good. We all celebrated. So let's do that. I want to be like that man. But then they went, they sold the property, they came back, and they didn't do that. It was, and, and, and right off the bat, it, it was disingenuine. It was, it was frankly disingenuine, and, it, and, their, and their motives were um, to, to, to deceive. And here's how the story went. So they sold the property, and with his wife's full knowledge, the husband and the wife both fully knew what was going on here. And of course, I talked last week about, you know, that you can't blame it on your husband as the covering of your household when, when entering into sin and vice versa. Husbands can't blame their wives and wives can't blame their husband. If you're in sin, you are in sin. If your husband's in sin and you think, well, I might as well join in because he's my husband. I need to submit to him. Well, this story clearly demonstrates that that's not the case. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, or Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Next slide, please. About three hours later, his wife came in. Now, I just want to, at this moment... Notice that the scriptures are doing here because we, we, we're, we're learning from scriptures. And so we have to analyze the scriptures in a very um, objective way. And what the scriptures are doing right now is they're drawing a distinction between the man and the woman. Okay? So the man came, lied, deceived. Okay? He, he said he was doing something that he didn't do. His heart wasn't there. He lied. And the consequence was death. And we'll deal with that in a moment because that does seem a bit tragic. Um, so that's that situation. And it wasn't over. So the woman, she came in separately on her own. Okay? And this is what happened when she came in separately on her own. Three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband, this is so creepy. Ah, this is so creepy. <laughs> the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. Oh my 
I told you this is a graphic story, guys. I mean, this is Sunday morning at its finest right here. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And verse 11 makes good sense. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these things. Now, I just want to say right now that this is a unique situation. This doesn't happen in churches, okay? In fact, historically speaking, this has never happened ever again. So I just want to make, throw that out there right now, let you guys know that this is not something to be afraid of, okay? Like, if I'm dishonest with God, I'm going to drop dead at church on Sunday morning. However, there are greater implications attached to this that we do need to be sensitive about, okay? And we're going to deal with that this morning. But I just want to make it very clear that, that this is unexpected. This is a unique thing. God does do one-of-a-kind types of things like once virgin birth. You know, he did crazy things like once a flood, a universal flood. So there are, God does have that, have that option to do something once, to shake, to send a message. And here is a message. What's the message? Well, simply, when we think about what we've just been said here, we see a husband and a wife practicing deception. Unfaithfulness to God, unfaithfulness to the church, lying, manipulation, dishonesty. Okay, we, we see that in the story. And that's the, that's the topics at hand. So whether or not we're going to drop dead if we don't tithe appropriately, I don't think that's the topic at hand. In fact, if you look at history, that doesn't happen often. This is a, truly a one-of-a-kind situation. But let's look at what we can learn from this, this story. Next slide, please. But first, and we've already kind of, I've kind of subtly hinted on it, but I want to deal with it a little bit more specifically. Who is guilty? What's, who's at fault? You know, and what's the charge? What, 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 why did they die? You know, what, what, what did they do wrong? In verse 9, made it very clear, the husband, okay, the, this fella, Ananias, Ananias as a person, this is what he did. Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Okay? He has lied to the Holy Spirit. That's the charge. Who's guilty? Ananias is guilty. Guilty of what? Lying to the Holy Spirit. Okay? Simply put. Who else? Did I reverse it? I reverse it. That's verse 3. Sorry. Verse 3. Verse 9. Who else is guilty? Peter said to her. Who's her? Sapphira or Sapphira. The wife. This person. This individual. What about her? How could you have conspired to test the Spirit of the Lord? So she was guilty on her own right of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord. So we talked about submission. I'm hinting on that. Could, 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 could she have not have said, but listen, I was just submitting to my husband? Well, apparently not. Because <laughs> God didn't, I mean, the, the, the disciples, they said no. And, and God confirmed it by, you know, allowing her to die instantaneously. And again, we could speculate and say maybe they, they were so panic-stricken they died of a heart attack or aneurysm. Well, that's possible. Regardless of what actually did happen physically to them, they died. And, and, the, and the crime against them is lying, conspiring to lie. And again, some, some might say, but, but when, when, they, when, they cons- when they did this, 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 this deed, this, this, this manipulation, this, this lying, they did it at a time when he was a spiritual covering. But now that he's dead, she doesn't have this covering. She's a widow. But the problem with that is, if that were the case, then the disciples are practicing manipulation themselves because she didn't know. 
that he died when they asked her. They asked her, what happened when you were married together and conspiring together? You're guilty of it still here and now. So basically what we're seeing here is personal responsibility. We cannot, the temptation is to say, well, I'm this way because of some other person. I sin because my husband sins. I sin because my brother sins. I sin because my friend sin. And you know what? God, God will understand that because, you know, I'm generally a good guy besides the fact that I'm a gross sinner. But you know what? You're a sinner. They're sinners. And sin is very personal, just as much as salvation is very much so personal. You are saved by a personal relationship with God, but you're also guilty of sin because of what you've done. Not because of what your family has done or your relationships have done or because of what someone's done to you. These might be all horrible things, but the reality is we are all personally responsible for our sins. Next slide, please. And so the question could be asked, could they have been cured? Because you see the disciples doing a lot of amazing things, curing people, curing, you know, spiritually, you know, possessed people and, um, you know, giving the good news to, you know, to, for salvation and all these wonderful things to, to cure people. Well, couldn't they have been cured? Well, I, again, I think the scriptures implies that, 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 that what has happened here was the best thing that could happen to them. And there's other scriptures here that kind of confirm that as well. In Mark 3, starting in verse 22, it says that the teacher's law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Basically, the, the, the Pharisees are seeing Jesus healing people and they're casting out demons. Okay, so if, if, if Ananias and Sapphira were possessed by a demon, by an evil spirit, and that's what compelled them to lie and to manipulate, then they could have been cured, they could have been healed like Jesus did to others, Right? <clears throat> because that's what they did do. That, he was in the business of, of driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speaking to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And he goes on to say, Truly I tell you, and this is the important bit, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Okay? Make it very clear. He's talking about healing people, right? He's talking about people who are demon-possessed, healing them. People can be forgiven of all kinds of sins in every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Now, think about that. What was the charge? Lied to the Holy Spirit. Conspired to lie against the Holy Spirit. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are Guilty of eternal sin. Now, using this scripture, I am doing a little bit, I've got a lot of speculation. Because I thought to myself, when they died, did they die, but were they dead, but were they saved? Did this save their soul? Did God prevent them by, you know, taking them out of this temporal environment where they were prone to lying and manipulation? They were too weak to live in this temporal world. Did God deliver that to them by bringing them into eternity for salvation? Possibly, I don't know. I mean, again, this, 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 this isn't proof text. I mean, I'm saying this doesn't point directly to what we're reading in Acts. It implies what we see what's going on. It's, it's good information to think about when we're looking at what's happening in Acts. But it's also possible, again, both ways of speculation. Did they die and go to heaven? They die to eternal death. We don't know. Why? Because Acts didn't tell us. This tells us. It's a dangerous place to be, okay? 
Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a dangerous thing. It's unforgivable, guilty of an eternal sin. So this looks really scary right here. Now, it could very much so be that they, God showed mercy on them. But we don't know because the book of Acts doesn't tell us. But what I'm suggesting is that what happened was so deep that this was the best solution. It couldn't have been cured any other way. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is total disobedience, complete lack of faith and trust in God. I mean, if you look at it, you look at what commentators say about when the dictionaries, Greek dictionaries, and other theor, you know, theological books say about it, basically, it's total disobedience and complete lack of faith and trust in God. To have total disregard towards God's Holy Spirit. Next slide, please. So was the penalty of death, was it too harsh? I, I mentioned temporal versus eternal. And here's an eternal perspective. Because, I mean, think of, the thing is, we live our lives here on this world stuck in this crazy temporal kind of illusion, if you will. I mean, think about it. Moments, they come and they go. So every, you don't really experience a moment because as soon as you grab it, it's gone. That's the temporal world. Every day, you live another day. Every year, you live another year. Even Danny and I were talking the days, like, why is it that we, the people tend to always do traditions? They always tend to do certain things at a certain time of the year. I don't know. I'm not kind of person, I like to mix it all up. I want to do Christmas and summer this year. Why not? You know what I'm saying? I mean, but the thing is, we, we as people tend not like to do that. We like to have things kind of figured out. We like to eat fish on Friday and steak on Saturday. You know what I'm saying? We, we're that kind of people. But the thing is, why? Because we're trying to capture a moment. Those moments, they come, they go. Especially when you get older, like myself. When you're in their 40s, you start looking, and you go, wait, the moments are flying by really fast now. Because when you have children, and you're trying to enjoy them and appreciate them, you're looking at them, they're growing so fast. The moments, they go by. That's temporal. And if you think about it, if you put your whole life together, it's just it's like a bunch of dominoes. It's just do 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 Or cards, house of cards, just do 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 Falling down, that's all life is. What, but, but here's reality, eternity. Eternity isn't like that. Eternity always is. Okay? It isn't, it isn't stuck in a bunch of chaotic moments just flashing by in memories of moments past. Eternity is the ultimate reality. It, what, it is what really is. It's, it's the ultimate reality. It's what we live for. It's what we long for. It's what we want. It's ultimate stability. It's ultimate security. It is. It's not chaotic like time and changing and evolving and moving and deteriorating, you know? It is. It's what is right. And if that's what our home is, and that's what our reality should and our focus should be all about, then big deal, they died. If they were spared in eternity, right? It says here in, in, in Luke 12, 4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw it into hell. Th that's the thought. I think that's, that's our hope. This is our motivation. I want life. I don't want death. We see through this temporal world, life and death constantly just bombarding us. I want life. I'm sick of death. What did Jesus do on the cross? He conquered sin and 
death. That's for me. So I'm not afraid of those who can kill my body. I'm afraid of the, him who, who, who gives me eternal destiny, you know? Is it with him in heaven? Reality, real life? As I certainly don't want death. I certainly don't want hell. And that's the issue that at hand. That's when you think about, again, we live in a society that's purely naturalistic. People live only for the moment that's continually coming and going and fleeting. That is what the world we live in is like. People live for the moment. How can I preserve my moments and so I can have the max amount of moments? Because that's it, because ultimately everyone's moments are going to end because everyone dies. And that's it. Poof, you're in the ground. Game over. But if Christ is right and if God in Christianity is true, then there's more to life than just this illusion, this game of dominoes or this game of house of cards. There's more to life than that, and that is eternity. So what if they never repented and died in a worse state? Okay? It says in verse 21 of Mrs. Matthew, I didn't put the link, it's, um, I think it's Matthew 7. Matthew 7, I didn't put it there. Okay. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only, I underline that for a reason, because I want to repeat it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now these two, Ananias and Sapphira, they're very likely said, Lord, Lord, quite a bit, because they're hanging about the church. But here's the danger for them. Not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. So maybe if they were left to continue this lifestyle of lying and manipulation, that ultimately for them, it would have caused greater problems, eternally speaking, which is what really matters, right? So maybe what God did is saved them, spared them. I don't know. Again, I'm speculating. I know I am. But I'm trying to make sense of the story best I can. But only one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And your name drive out demons, and your name perform many miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Next slide. Commentators on this passage of the scripture always, always usually, well, not always, but mostly, will talk about the effect that, it, that, that this had or could have had on the early church. Okay? In verse 11, what do we see? Great fear seized the whole church. They stood up straight, right? Why? Because they saw that God's not going to mess around with this, these lies and manipulations and deception. Okay, unfortunately, the church, like I says, this is a one-off event that doesn't happen. This has never happened again. Anything like this has never happened, in, as far as I know, in, in church history since then. I kind of wish it did because the church has been a house of a lot of manipulation, lying, and deceit. But the, at the early stage, at this infancy of the church, God wanted to preserve it. That's what a lot of commentators suggest. And I, I kind of think that's good. Because what happened? Whoa, we're not going there. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Because these guys, they said yes, they meant no. And now they're dead. I don't want that. So this sent a message across the whole church. Wow, God means serious business. And the reason, okay. When I thought about this, I thought about this Satan because it even says Satan has caused you to do this. Isn't that what it said back in verse? That's right. So there we go. What else has Satan done to, to a person way long time ago? Now, all of this is bound on a greater problem, a greater fall, a greater tragedy. And that goes way back to the original sin, the, the fall of, of mankind and, and nature itself. 
in Genesis 3. And I see parallels in what could have happened here. Imagine this. Imagine if Satan was there lying and, 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 and you know, speaking into the ears of people. Ah, you know what? God didn't really mean that. God's not really you know, interested in your whole life. You know what? You can go ahead and have your cake and eat it too. Go ahead and sell the property. You know, pocket half of it and give half the church and get the credit, get the glory. You can see Satan, because that's what the scriptures imply, right? Satan was kind of conversing, whispering in the ears. And when I thought about that, it reminded me of the fall. And this is what Genesis 3 says, starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty, and certainly Satan is very crafty, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the gar- trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Then the crafty Satan, the serpent, says, you will not certainly die, whatever that means. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, it was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable to gain wisdom. She took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So very similar, except for the roles were kind of reversed. You know, the husband seems to be the one who plotted to the story in Acts. Well, it was Eve in her interaction with Satan that plotted this act. You know, but both went along. You know, Sapphira went along with Ananias and Adam went along with Eve. You know, but they both were responsible for what they did do. But don't you see the parallel? Don't you see the, the similarities? So what was the result of the fall? What's the consequences of the fall? All human misery, all historical tragedy and calamities and world disasters and and just messed up earth, (laughs) right? That's pretty bad. So don't we want to prevent that? So certainly maybe God too was thinking, I'm not going to have my church. You know, Satan, Satan, he uses techniques. He has, he's got his little book of tools. All right, if it worked in Genesis 3, maybe it'll work here in Acts 4 or 5. I'm going to mess up the church really bad by letting this little bit of cancer come in and spoil the church. God maybe said, you know what? Enough. I'm not having it. Next slide, please. So eradicate the spiritual cancer. Make room for some spiritual healing of all sorts. In verse 12, it says this in Acts 5. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. And no one else dared join them. (laughs) Probably because of what just happened. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were at number. Even despite what just happened here. People were seeing and they were believing and they were convincing because they... Because God was real and God was doing things. And, and this, is the, this is the infancy. You know, I mean, think about it. A baby grows the most in this first few years. And that's the church. It's growing very fast, very rapidly. And, and, and it needed to be protected. So the Heavenly Father wanted to protect the church, care for the church. As a result, people brought their sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats. So that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them. As he passed by, crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. Let's look at the next slide, please. 
and all of them were healed. That was interesting to me. I read this one, and all of them were healed. It's funny because again, we're talking about like Nice and Sapphira, you know, and, and, and you know, coming off of the story of the man who gave and they gave, but they weren't able to be healed. And we talked a little bit about why that, that could have been the case. But now we see some real healings going on, some real healings. And the cool thing is all these spiritually ill people were coming to the church and they were all being healed. And you know what? I want to be out there and say, I want to be honest with you, I believe God heals all spiritual afflictions. The problem is there's a group of people who believe that all afflictions are spiritual afflictions. But the thing is, there's different categories. You have spiritual afflictions, you have natural afflictions, and you have trying Afflictions. Let's look at these three really quick in the next five minutes. I think it'll be, we will do it quick and easy. Because this is very important. Because we see healing, spiritual healings, and healings of all kinds and sorts in the scriptures. And I want to, I want, I want to tackle this in the next five, ten minutes before, as we finish up. But looking at these three afflictions. Because we see people come to the church. And people being healed, being, being prayed for. And that sounds awesome. sounds powerful. Now, if the, a certain camp who would agree is that all healings are... Uh, the, 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 these disciples or apostles were able to heal all kinds of things, no matter what. Either A, they, they struggle with what the church is able to do now, or they say that it was only for the disciples and the apostles only, and God stopped it at some point. I'm not that rigid. I think God can still do things. I'm not that rigid. I think God is still doing things. I think we just don't see it. But let's look at the three different kinds of afflictions, and so we can maybe kind of taste and see what's going on even today, even right now. First of all, you have spiritual afflictions, like I say. And these are caused, I think, chiefly by disobedience, by sin. Fallen, fallen nature, right? Fallenness of the world, the fallenness of us, moral depravity, disobedience, distrust towards God. Biblically speaking, we see the afflictions that were um, healed uh, here, things that are going on here in Acts. But also we have examples like the madman who was possessed by legion. Okay, remember, Jesus cast him out in Mark 5. Then the mute boy who was cured by Christ. Remember they came down the hill of the transfiguration and they, the disciples couldn't heal the boy who was possessed? He, the mute boy? Well, Jesus healed him, okay? <clears throat> These are clearly spiritual afflictions because we see demons running out and screaming and hollering. But also when we see these healings, we see the need of spiritual renewal. And Luke 11, 24 says this, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition, that person is worse than the first. You see, it's a timing issue. According to what Jesus is saying here, if a person's not right, if you, don't, if you take out an evil spirit and don't put in God's Holy Spirit, it's just a vacant place waiting for more to come back, right? So timing's a big issue. Are you ready for Christ? Because I know many, many people, even in this village, even in this town, who are spiritually oppressed. And they're spiritually afflicted by it because they're not ready for Christ. So you've got to be ready for Christ. If you heal someone and some other dodgy spirit jumps in, you know, a, a new thing, you know, to distract them from God. That does them no good. And again, contemporary symptoms of spiritual afflictions, depression, addictions, substance abuse, physical illnesses that are caused by spiritual afflictions like laziness, fear, anxiety, 
social disorders, criminal behavior. I mean, think about that. Even, even psychologists today look at people who are criminally prone as being unwell. Because that's why they call it correctional facilities. It's like another type of hospital, you know? How do we correct people's behaviors? So even psychology today looks at that as a disorder. People who commit crimes. Why do you commit crimes? What's wrong with you? But I think they're spiritual. I.e. they're moral. They're deep. They're ethical. These symptoms, however, are not sufficient indicators for spiritual afflictions. These symptoms can only can have other causes. Like, for instance, depression. Some people are just, they just have it. It's just, they just, they just are prone to it. Charles Hayden Spurgeon was bipolar, okay? He, was, he suffered depression all the time. Was he spiritually oppressed? I don't think so. I think he's full of Holy Spirit. But I'm saying these are symptoms of, of someone who might be, you know, someone who's disobedient, who runs from God, who flees from God, who rejects God. They tend to be depressed, anxious, fearful. I'm not saying if you have fear and anxiety, you are Demonly possessed. I'm not saying that. I'm saying these are symptoms that point to possible flexions of this manner. Yeah.